My best guess is I've talked to more than 7,000 people. That's kind of a conservative guess on camera and on mic. And it's always different. It's always interesting. But after a while, you develop this. People consider me to be easy to talk to. That's one of the highest compliments I can get is that you're easy to talk to. Not making them nervous, not making them uptight. And so I'm doing that professionally now in my day job, which is called Voice Locket, voicelocket.com. And I talk to families, I talk to founders, anybody who you want to get to know your grandfather better or on the family level or talking to founders if you're pitching for funding or if you are just pitching for new customers, uh, telling those kinds of stories, the heart and soul of a business of entrepreneurship, connecting with other people. Nothing does it better than, I call it film, because basically there's no distinction nowadays between video and film. It's shot on digital and it looks gorgeous. Voicelocket.com. If anybody brings you this program, that's who does. And I hope you'll check us out. Thanks so much. So I was moving jobs based on where he needed to go, but all with the expectation that like his career was more important. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Well, hello there, and welcome to In Her Words as we start our fourth year, hard to believe, still around, a new episode every week. That's right, there has never been a repeat. This week, a woman breaking barriers in tech, the only woman in the room when she started. Betsy Husser is the founder and now the CEO of TTS, Tech Talent and Strategy. But she started in journalism, and she's a native North Carolinian, and it gets a little bit confusing in the beginning or the middle of this interview when we talk about husband number one and husband number two, the uh, father of her children. So uh, you may have to pay close attention to that, but otherwise, a pioneer, a trailblazer for women in tech. Betsy Hooser. Where were you born? I was actually born in Charlotte. Hospital or home? Hospital. I'm middle child of three. I have an older sister who's three and a half years older and a younger brother who's four and a half years younger than me. Okay. Um, did you feel seen? Yes and no. I still <laughs> complain a lot about the fact that I had to wear my sister's old clothes and my brother got all brand new things. And I tell the story about the fanny pack on a regular basis, which is for my seventh birthday, they let me pick a fanny pack. There was a red one and a purple one. And I picked the red one and then my sister just got the purple one. I was like, picking a color is not a birthday present. <laughs> it wasn't her birthday. That's right. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, my parents are amazing. I, I did. Um, I'm fantastically different than my siblings, and I think my differences were appreciated. What did your father do for a living? So my dad was um, typical, I think, for that generation, climbed the ranks at Duke Energy, was there 
for a lifetime almost, uh, went from being an accountant, eventually was CFO of the company, which is really crazy to watch someone, you know, now as an adult, understanding that just the work that must have gone into, you know, going from just a, a bean counter up into this prestigious role at one of the biggest companies in the world. And to me, he was just my goofy dad who was home for dinner basically every night and with us at the lake with no TV in a shack every weekend. So did he own this beautiful land on Lake Norman before it was a lake? No, um, but we were early. So this was not the first property that we owned when I, before I was born um, and I'm about to be 41. So 40 something years ago, my parents and their friends who uh, John Pearl, who also worked for Duke Energy at the time, Duke Power, uh, bought a lot with a cement stack on it. They called it a lake house. It was, that is a gross overstatement. And all five of us slept in one bedroom and the two of them slept in one bedroom. And there was one bathroom which had roaches galore. My sister and I would not go in it alone. <laughs> no TV, no air conditioning. And we were there all summer long. And so we did that for probably till mid 2000s is my guess. And then the Pearls actually went to build there and retire. So sold our part of the property over to them. And my parents bought this property. Um, they went around and the thing they cared most about was seeing how deep the water was because I mean, I learned how to ski at four. I learned how to slalom at 10, do a 360 on the kneeboard, 20 bucks at 12 years old. So we really appreciated the water. So my mom carried around a rock on um, a string to make sure <laughs> the water was deep enough. And they were building all those like mansions on the lake. Mom was like, I don't care about any of that. I wanna have deep water off the pier. So we bought this um, 60s home. So you could ski here. Oh yeah. And there are no stumps around nope. in here. Yeah, I mean, it's basically 20 something feet off the, the pier. And the result is also the views are gorgeous. It's, we should say 270 degrees. It's amazing. On a peninsula. Yeah, on the west side of the lake. Yep. So this is, this is slightly more down, although the world has discovered the Lincoln and Iredale so sections true. of lake. Yeah, I, um, I get flack from some of my friends sometimes for being on the west side of the lake, but I like it over here. It's, you know, there's still less traffic to get to the teeter and... And 16, zoom, you're yep. right out. Yeah. Yep, so I can head into Charlotte, no problem. 16, better than 77. Yeah, for right. sure. Yeah. Mm. So you have tons of great memories of growing up here. I mean, it is so probably the most important place in the world to me and my siblings. I mean, you know, over the summer, every weekend, there are people here. It's basically open invitation. My parents have done this amazing job like building tradition. So my dad has grilled hamburgers every Saturday night for as long as I can remember and made homemade ice cream every Saturday What kind night. of homemade ice cream? Just vanilla, but we have a topping bar, so you can, oh, well, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you can come. It's, it's like- Don't um, say that unless you mean it. <laughs> I do mean Because I will it. like show up. <laughs> and it's incredible. And yeah, so my, you know, we don't have a TV at the, the lake house, so everybody just plays cards and board games and, Boat goes out at 9 a.m. every morning, ski and wake surf and it's Wow. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So it's not the uh, pontoon <clears throat> party boat. It's the no, it's a, ski it's boat. A, it's a real boat. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a bass boat. This That's is right. a ski boat. You got it. Yeah. Well, cool. 
So did your kids learn to ski up here? So they haven't yet. So my oldest is seven mm. and we learned it. My sister and I learned at four and my brother learned at five and we still kind of give him hell over that. <laughs> <laughs> Although he's so much better than us. I mean, it's, there's no comparison. Um, but I think this summer my oldest daughter will learn. My, oh. my son is a, he, he's kind of a fraidy cat and I was too yeah. growing up. So I'm not sure he's quite ready yet. You don't want to shove him out there. You don't want to just tether him to the back of the boat, and drag him around. My dad called that mandatory fun. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's so much fun. I have memories of, you know, we had a big tube and yep. we would go and we would also Slam. ski. We had two tubes, slam each other on and off of it, kick your foot off and knock the other person off. <laughs> We had a tube named Big Bertha that was so patched up that it just like completely blew out one time and That's all we amazing. saw were arms and legs. Mm -hmm. Now, what was your relationship with your mother like? What was she like? Your dad's off, you know, saving Duke Energy and your mom is doing what? My mom was a teacher early on. She supported my dad through while he was getting his MBA. Um, and then she actually stayed home with us and she was, I mean, the PTO parent that you hear about, my mom was everywhere. She was my Girl Scout leader. She really was the PTO president. I remember her hosting, uh, they, I guess they had like a, a vote for school bonds. And I remember her hosting people at our house to try to get them involved. And my mom's just, I mean, she's literally the nicest person in the world. I mean, everyone would say that. She's, um, my my kids probably are her greatest fans and i mean she just has always been that way i mean all of my friends loved her she's so involved and she's just kind what's something that you just immediately found yourself doing with your little ones that that she did with you yeah it's a great question i think that um one of the things that's been so important to me is like celebration and traditions and i didn't I don't think I had a proper appreciation for that till I had kids and my mom was so great about that. You know, and the things you don't really notice, like, like I was mentioning with the ice cream every Saturday and you know, Christmas, we had all these like very real traditions and we had them throughout the year, right? We, at birthdays, we had this plate, which we always rolled our eyes cause it said, you are special. And we went around the table and we talked about why everybody thought this person was special. And I think, you know, as soon as I had kids, I started building, similar traditions and I, I think I got that from my mom this repetitive behavior that you remember over time that matters to them now but I know it'll matter to them even more you know 20 years down the road yeah so it's not only a sense of place it's a sense of familiarity that yep. family is you can count on them to do certain things and there's a great comfort in that yep you know families that are disrupted uh, that's what they miss is they can't count on Christmas like being there. They can't count on whatever birthdays, you know, they can't count on that. Uh, and it's something that people who grow up in a nuclear family where, you know, they're two parents, yep. there's siblings, you don't have to worry about is somebody not going to be here? Is dad not going to be here? Right. Um, that is so important, that sense of stability. It's been so interesting because of course, and happy to go into it, but you know, I've been a single mom now for um, almost three years. And uh, you know, my kids shuffle back and forth. The, we, we split physical custody and um, 
there have been lots of challenges, but my parents in my, my village have been such a stability point. It's been incredible. And one of the biggest upsides, it's, it's been a really challenging situation, has been my parents kind of, I mean, they were already super involved, but stepping up even more. And I have watched my parents have a relationship with my kids. I had a great relationship with my grandparents. They were all wonderful. But my parents' relationship with my kids is so intimate and close. And it's amazing. Like it's, it's been this like bright side amidst like a complicated situation where, you know, my kids like show up to school. I mean, my parents show up to school events. My kids will ask to one-on-one -on -one come and spend the night with them. And I mean, they want to, you know, they want to go see Nanny Grand. They appreciate the individual time they can get with them. Uh, there are four of them. So it's, it's hard for them to get a lot of individual attention and God bless my parents because of them. I also get one-on-one -on -one time with my kids. You know, I can take a kid and go do something and my parents will watch the others. Um, but they have been so intentional on making sure those traditions and everything, even if they had to be modified, right, that they still existed. And I think even probably the, the divorce and the, the difference for my kids that I didn't experience, my siblings didn't experience, has really facilitated this like just incredible bond between my kids and my parents. Did you always want to be a mom? Absolutely. Um, I was the one growing up. I mean, I had a dog growing up. I remember, you know, dreaming of this dog. I slept with like, I drew pictures of dogs every day. I'm sure my parents were like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I, they finally got me a dog for Christmas of my third grade year and I couldn't pick her up on Christmas day and I slept with her picture. I mean, I was like, and my What mom, kind of dog was this? A Sheltie. What was her name? Her name was Bonnie. She was amazing. And was Bonnie like, I need a break. Oh <laughs> I need gosh. a vacation. I trained Bonnie to jump through hoops, to climb up the slide, to slide back down, to pull me on skates. <laughs> this dog tolerated a lot. Uh, uh, yeah, so I always, I was very motherly from the beginning. And it was uh, your dog. It was nobody else's dog. My dog. Yeah. Were there any other dogs in the house? So we had had Dalmatians um, when, when my parents got married. They had two, Mindy and Apollo. And Mindy died when I was fairly young. And then Apollo died, um, I guess I was in first grade, right before we moved from Charlotte out to Gaston County. Uh, and I always say he, he probably just didn't want to make that move. He's like 14. He's like, this is enough, you know, I, I'm, I'm done. Uh, he was an awesome dog. And so then from that point, the next dog we got was Bonnie. And then when Bonnie passed, my brother got a dog. Um, yeah. So we've pretty much always had dogs. Um, How old were you when Bonnie passed? Uh, I was a senior in high school and it was the week before prom. It's one of those things you never forget, you know, and I, I felt kind of the same. I was like, she knows I'm about to go to college. This is... You know, like it, it. How old was she? She was, I believe, ten. She had, um, she had liver issues. She had seizures, etc. So she passed a little younger. Did they have to put her down? We. She actually passed away on the way to the emergency vet. So I was holding her and didn't even know. Um, my mom was driving, and when we got there, I distinctly remember it because I remember walking in and like, you know, the the vet there could have used a little bedside manner training. She's like, well, she's dead. Well, you know, I was, she obviously passed on the way there. Um, How did you receive that? Oh, I mean, I mean, I'm so sad. I and mean, she was, you know, she was my best friend growing up. Yeah. Um, 
our vet, when we put our, our last dog down, let us, they said, you sit there as long as you like. You know, and I thought that was... It's incredible. Uh, yeah. There, there is like, well, so now my situation there has changed. So I had, after I graduated college, I got my first dog that was my dog without Coney, um, Coniferous. His head was shaped <laughs> like a pine cone. He didn't wear, have to wear the cone on his head <laughs> right. all the time. <laughs> he just had a permanent cone shape. Um, what kind of dog is this? He was a, a mutt. I actually went to the Orange County. I went to Chapel Hill, and I went to the Orange County Animal Shelter, and he and all of his siblings were there, and it said he was a Great Dane mix. He was puffy, and like he was clearly not. And I go back. Not so great, Dane. Right. I go back two months later, store, and this poor dog is still there, and all his siblings are gone. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this poor dog. He's just been sitting here. Nobody wants him. He's so cute. His name was Travis at the Pound, which is a terrible dog name. So I adopted him at 21 or whatever, and um, he was the greatest gift. And then I, when I, I moved to Atlanta temporarily and fostered there and got another dog, Wheezy. And then they... Um, Coney passed the week I found out I was pregnant with twins. Oh, wow. Um, and I think similar. He's like, oh, uh-uh. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not down two, for that. Right. I did not sign up yes. for two at once for yes. being tugged on right. by two at once. And then Wheezy passed away. Um, my ex and I separated in June, the November of that year. And both of those, with Coney, the vet came to my house and with Wheezy, my sister-in-law is a veterinarian, and she is a wonderful human. She drove up from South Carolina um, and actually helped me put Wheezy down at my house, which was, uh, it sounds a little strange, but it was such a wonderful experience. The best something like that can be, because she cares about Wheezy. And would. Yeah, had you had boyfriends? Dated anybody seriously? Yeah, I actually married my college sweetheart and we're still really good friends. He's Indian and I'm obviously not. Uh, and so we were young and what's interesting now is I, I think that cultural difference was a big deal at that point. We were the only people we knew in an interracial relationship and it was really hard with family and stuff. So we- What kind of wedding did you have? We had both. Oh, you did? Yeah. and. Uh, we are we are still good friends. So. Did you go to India? No, and but you had the big the multi day ceremony with like the hotel and everything. Is, it is something that like if you haven't been to an Indian wedding, I mean yes, like we had the whole. It shebang. is a time. It's You've... amazing. They know how to party. Yeah, <laughs> and every cousin meets you. Oh. You are marrying into a family. Five hundred people. It feels like that's right. So. Um, so we actually moved to Chicago together and then Atlanta. And then before we started to have kids, the family stuff got difficult and we were worried about it. And kudos to us. Like, I think we made a really mature decision and have remained, it was completely amicable. We are still friends. Um, he has, he knows my kids. How'd you meet your ex? Yeah. So I think I met my ex, um, maybe three years later. So after um, my college sweetheart and I split, I moved. I was pretty lonely in Atlanta. He was working for Bain as a consultant, so he was traveling. I didn't really know anyone. Um, and candidly, I didn't love Atlanta. We had been in Chicago, and, and I actually really did like Chicago. Did you have job versus career? I mean, yeah. what kind of work were you doing? Yeah, it's such a great question. So I think the second that 
his name was Raj, but the second that we started dating, he was older than me. Um, I think I did what a lot of, especially women do, and I assumed the back seat in the career front. Um, you know, he was an investment banker. We were going to move to show then we were gonna, so I was moving jobs based on where he needed to go, but all with the expectation that like, we, his career was more important. Um, what was your career? What did you study? I studied, uh, so I was in the journalism school, advertising PR. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we split, I moved back to Charlotte, be closer to family and friends. I was running a company called Little Idea. I was really interested in product development. I had run this tiny little company where I had just started making stuff on the side and selling it places. And I'd learned how to run my own ads and about trade shows and was not making enough to make a living. But like I had really gotten into this whole, hey, I can outline a product and I can get it produced and like, people will buy it. Like it was this like mind blowing experience for me. Very gratifying. That's right. And I was early adopter on Etsy, so I had sold products there. And I just thought, this is cool. And I was super into product development. I had the most epic entrepreneurial crush on Inventus that's based here in Charlotte. Uh, so Lewis Foreman, who is still one of my dearest mentors, I just thought he hung the moon. I mean, I thought everything he did was amazing. And I sent in my application and I never heard back and I didn't have the maturity to say, you know, email Lewis himself and say, I really want to work for you. Like, I don't even care what I do. Just like, get me in there. This is, this is the place for me. Trust me. So instead I, I did what I think a lot of young people do and say, well, no one, no one cared about my application. I'm sure what happened is Lewis's team's doing 9 million other things. No one even ever saw my application. Right. So, um, simultaneously there was a smaller company in Charlotte doing similar stuff called little idea. Uh, it was mostly engineers, I think about six people on staff. Um, but they didn't really have like the business marketing angle as much. They were really, these were mechanical engineers. They want to build stuff. Uh, so I ended up emailing them and long story short, met the founder. He's awesome. Fred is, I always say Fred gave me this like chance that really no one should have on paper. I wasn't qualified. Um, he was traveling a lot and he's like, well, why don't you come in and sort of not just run marketing, kind of run the business. Wow. Like, I don't think you know what you're talking about, Fred. I'm like researching him thinking, and he is, Fred's like a little bit of a mad scientist. He's willing to take a risk on the right people. And that leap of faith, like that, I I believe that springboarded my career and changed the rest of my trajectory professionally, which is pretty cool. So that year and a half was probably one of those fun times professionally I've ever had. I mean, the, um, you know, we built products, we did 3D printing, we turned out so many like e-commerce sites to test products for people and anywhere Inventus went, we were there too with our little banner, uh, you know, just kind of being a gnat in Lewis's side. And, uh, by the end of the year and a half, we ended up merging with Lewis. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. So you're kind of stalking them and- You got it, yeah, everything And obviously worked. he saw a value in that too. Yeah. But I must say, it sounds like a pretty male workplace, a pretty male space. Yeah. Like how many other women were there? Well, there were no other women, I think, when I got there. So Um, wait a minute, you're a woman and you're technically the boss of the men and it worked. 
So how did that happen? Well, I will say, um, now having run, you know, a tech adjacent company, I, it's interesting that I got I got really lucky. So Hayward, who was the lead engineer there, he is he is just like I never even felt like he identified me as a different gender, right? It was just we were different roles, and he was he knew how to build stuff, and I didn't, and um, and I knew how to market stuff, and we got along swimmingly. So um, I didn't really feel a, I didn't feel isolated or I, I didn't notice my gender as much at Little Idea, which is interesting. Later at Tech Talent South, I noticed it um, on a regular basis. In fact, one of the I tell a couple stories about that, but early after I started TTS, I will never- So you started that company? I'm the founder, yes. Okay, go ahead, So Sorry. I'll get there. So TTS, so after we merged with Inventus, Lewis wanted to throw me at business development and that was my dream. But at that point, I'd gotten the itch. Um, I, I was married or about to be married to Jason. Um, and I had been teaching myself to code online. Hayward, my lead engineer, was learning to code too. He was whooping my tail because it was just second nature to him. And it was foreign to me, but I was really enjoying it. And we had tried to facilitate some app builds at Little Idea. We did not do a great job. And I thought, well, there's a big market here, right? There are all these people that have all these ideas and they're not physical products. They're mobile apps, they're web applications. They're... And, and I had friends that were in the startup community, um, Ben Harrison at Deal Cloud and John West at Ad Shoppers. And I was watching them, you know, scale and build these incredible businesses. And I had a little bit of FOMO thinking, well, physical products are really cool, but they take an unbelievable of work and i always joke but it's really true like you pick the wrong screw and quite literally you're screwed right like you have to start from ground zero again you're dependent on your suppliers the ability to scale there right. are all kinds of things Super that hard. you can do with technology alone with software alone right for the fraction of a cost right if you know how to code for the cost of hosting domain let's say 40 bucks you can build out an mvp like yeah. that's mind-blowing and empowering and it's not a better mousetrap it is a better idea. That's right. Like if you have the idea yep. and people need blank, then, you know, as, right. as we like to say, Uber is a software company. Yep. And yeah. so all it takes is those skills and you can actually build out a product. That was like just so empowering to me. So I, I told Lewis, I was like, you know, I, I actually think that I want to learn to code and I might want to build a company, me build a company. Um, but keep the door open for me. I was like, I don't want to lose this relationship. So I ended up taking off to Chicago to enroll in, at that point, I believe they were, there's an argument over who was the first coding boot camp in the nation. I think they were. Um, and this was Starter League. They were founded by two young guys, younger than me, um, out of Northwestern who wanted to learn to code. Uh, one of them ended up running for mayor. He's super cool guys. Uh, they just kind of built this like little mentorship group, maybe five to 10 people, and they learned to code and became developers. And so then they started Starter League, which was essentially a school to teach software development rapid pace. And when I went up there, it was class five or six, really early on, um, the company, uh, so Basecamp, which is software that's used for project management, is owned by 37 Signals. They also wrote the, com the language Rails, it's like, I can't conceptualize saying, well, I can't use Java or 
Python or whatever. So I'll just create my own language that will be So there are those people. So great people to learn from. So I end up going to Chicago to learn to code in 11 weeks. I get there. I'm one of, I think I'm the only female that traveled to the program to stay. Um, Out of how many? 40 something at least. Mm. Um, and certainly in the minority that I was female, there were other females in the course. Uh, there was only one other Southerner in the program, Richard. And, um, you know, I, the, when you read my story, it always sounds like I went up there and I like didn't know anyone. That That's not really true. I had lived there before. So I was crashing on my buddy's couch, learning how to code. Um, but it was an incredible experience. I mean, what they put together, you, you can't recreate it. I mean, there were people from all over the world. So it'd be like a doctor from Ghana and like a taxi driver from the UK. And I mean, it was just this incredibly bright humans who said, I want to learn this. And it was for a variety of different reasons. Some people actually wanted to be in software development. Lots of people had apps they wanted to build themselves. Some people, I mean, it was, it was incredible. And so we were all learning these skills as quickly as possible. You know, people were staying there all day long. I mean, and I just kept thinking the only thing that would have been better about this process is if it had happened in my hometown, right? So I was creating this amazing network in Chicago. And I remember going to the founders saying, well, I want to go back to Charlotte. And they didn't know anyone there. I had more connections in Charlotte because of the business I'd run before. So fast forward six months later, and I launched the first code school in Atlanta with Richard, the only other Southerner in that program who was from Atlanta. Um, and we, we bootstrapped that business. So we taught kids how to code first. Interesting tidbit. So I used to joke that in Georgia, if you graduate kindergarten, you could teach it. But in this case, you graduated code school and you turned around and created another code school. A hundred percent. So you didn't just, you like founded the school based on what you learned. You I it. love it. Yeah. I love it. I said, you know, this, this looks like a great model and they didn't want to expand. I think had they wanted to expand, I would have had that conversation about launching a campus in, in the Southeast. Um, so yeah, Richard and I, started teaching kids to code. Kudos to co-working spaces and a bunch of support for the entrepreneurial community. A lot of people, uh, Atlanta Tech Village and um, you know Packer Place in Charlotte, they opened their doors to us and let us teach the kids to code. We, I don't think we paid any rent. And you know we saved enough money that summer to actually run our first adult program in um, October of that year. And I always, it's so funny now, cause you know, we just announced that we're partners we're collaborating with AWS and because you mentioned Amazon, um, you know, I, I forget like early on, it's, it gets it's surreal when it changes, but you know, that first class of 14 people, seven during the day and seven at night, they were sitting and we were teaching them projecting onto a wall of a kitchen of a co-working space. And you know, it was, we thought it was incredible. I looked back and they like, learned and yes, and they became developers and those people, one of them now is now a CTO. I mean, they are, it's unbelievable to watch the early folks from TTS and where they are now and, and to know that like, that was a real change that. Because if they're like me, I'm like, I can't balance my checkbook. There's no way I could learn that. You, and what you're saying is, no, that's a mental block more than anything else. If you're just open to it, you got we'll, it. We'll, we'll pour it in there. We'll make it you know, baby steps. We'll teach you your colors and your numbers and you, you know. You got it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I always say too, like some people, it takes a little bit longer. I was probably bottom 10% of the class in Chicago, if I'm honest. But I had, you know, this other piece of me, which is sort of this like very outgoing, you know, business development kind of mind that would make up for that in some ways. And so I always tell people like, you may not want to be a back-end coder forever, but knowing technology, I mean, it's a language that almost every business is, you know, has technical capabilities or needs technology at this point. Like it's, it's really almost needs to be a mandatory skill. Well, when you say business development mind, I don't know what that means. I'm, I'm definitely got a, you know, I've got that PR salesmanship, you know, I, I look back at the history of TTS and I don't think we would have been as successful if, you know, I had the guts to go out and build meetup groups and start running them. And it, it was because I didn't see any reason why I shouldn't, right? Like, well, there's, the, I, I hear and stop me if I'm wrong, <laughs> check me, um, entrepreneurial spirit plus organizer plus leader, like outgoing leader. Like I hear this combination of spirit. It's not just, I want to make something big or I want to make a bunch of money. It's also, I want to, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a facilitator. I get people together. I connect community. So my team at TTS calls it the vortex of Betsy. They're like, there's this like thing and Betsy's floating around and all these people are just circulating and all of a sudden she knows everyone. And, a force of nature. Uh-huh to bring people together. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, it's been incredible. I mean, if you look at TTS now, we have over 36,000 public meetup members. So, oh, um, wonderful. Yeah, we just started running free events in every community for the first something like seven years. We So after we did the paid kids code programs to fund the business, we, we bootstrapped the business that way. I, you know, Richard and I looked at each other and we're like, we should not be charging kids to code, right? Like, that should just be a rite of passage. If Johnny wants to come code on Saturday morning and he doesn't have $500, I do not want that karma coming back on me. You know, like, let you come code. So we actually had our students help facilitate kids code programs in every community. It was like a pay it forward kind of mentality. And it was really cool. And it built the ecosystem. And then so many parents ended up coming to our adult programs. And it was it was awesome. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to let you get away from it. Men. Yeah. Uh, um, so invariably, if you're a woman in this tech world, you don't have to be in Silicon Valley to see the, the, the my kids keep telling me gender is a, is a construct and an abstraction that's a social in nature. And I say, well, estrogen and testosterone are not constructs. Right. <laughs> they are chemicals <laughs> and they change the way we behave. And you take those chemicals plus the culture we live in and you get what? What kind of, where did you have conflict or friction? Yeah, there are a couple of times that I remember really early on that were pretty impactful for me. Um, I mean, you're sitting here looking at me, but Obviously, if you're listening, you're, you're not. I have long blonde hair and blue eyes, and I don't look like a stereotypical developer, what people have in their mind. And um, at one point, my co-founder and I um, RSVP to a meetup, and it was for developers only. So there was going to be free pizza, and I'm sure it was recruiters trying to recruit developers um, for whatever roles. And of course, they accepted his uh, request to, to come to the event, 
and I got an email saying, I'm sorry, this email, this event is for developers only, it's not for recruiters. So they saw my picture when I RSVP'd and sent me a, this isn't an event for you, but they did not to my co-founder, Richard. We have the exact same background. Arguably mine was, you know, I'd run a company before and then I learned how to code. Um, he had worked at a company and then learned how to code. No difference. And how did you respond to that? You know, I wish I had done one thing different. I, differently. I did respond and say, hey, I want to be clear. You know, I, I actually do know how to code. And in fact, I train coders. I'm, I'm exactly the person you want to come to this event because I'm opening up the door to potentially hundreds of the people that you actually want. Um, but, you know, one of my greatest regrets is I didn't go. So uh, I let that... You didn't respond? I responded. You responded, but you didn't go. And I should have. You didn't insist. You got it. Did they ever get back to you? I don't think they even responded to me. Well, it would seem that in their enlightened self-interest, you're overlooking some of the very people that you don't just want for some sort of arbitrary, you know, mm -hmm. imposition of standards. These could be some of your best coders. You're overlooking talent. This is not in your own best interest. It is. It has been absolutely proven that the best technical products are made by diverse talent pools. I mean, think about it. Think about who's buying most of the products in the US, right? Why would you want perspective of one kind of individual when you could have perspective of all of them, right? Yeah. So, so to just not to put too fine a point on it, if you have one company that has all different types of folks and another company that seems to be very heavily into one particular type, the diverse company will kick the ass. That's right. They're going to build better Of the homogenous products. company. Yeah. How can you build products for yeah. all people without the voice of all people? Right. Um, it's pretty simple. And, and you think about coding, you know, there's, it's not, you know, I think people still have that, like, you're sitting in a basement, like, hacking your computer. Oh, like, think about, like, the UX and the, you know, how people interact with a site and all those different elements that require you know, creativity, understanding of, you know, human behavior, lots of different elements that I don't think people tend to associate with software development. And they're absolutely aligned. The engineers at Vanderbilt used to refer to the School of Arts and Sciences, the liberal artists like me, mm -hmm. they call it the School of Arts and Crafts. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> you know, and they said that the English majors were going to be mastering the question, would you like fries with that? Um, and, and so I think there exists this sort of, we do real stuff, you go and do finger painting, uh -huh. you know, like you're going to go teach kindergartners and we're going to go rule the world from Silicon Valley. And what you're saying is, come on now, takes all kinds, we have to respect the yin yang of these. So in fact, 100%, in fact, TTS has grown and iterated over time precisely because we said, we, you know, you the, you white guy that's in CS, you already know we exist to you and you can find us. TTS is gonna go invite the anthropology majors and the poli-sci majors to come into our world because Stuart, the easy part is teaching the technical chops. 
the communication and the like that's the part that's hard right so i'd take someone who was in the peace corps for two years over a cs major anytime because i want that experience i want that ability to understand you know co-workers and products and so we actually you know one of our sweet spots is recruiting liberal arts majors giving them the technical chops and then spinning them out to um, employer partners oh good on you yeah it's that's wonderful mm-hmm. yeah so now if you could talk to the betsy of you know 10 yeah years ago um is it that the the environment has changed or but what would you tell that betsy about the environment then like how would you put your arm around her and how are you putting your arm around the young betsy's and 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 what are you kind of coaching them up to do to say listen this is kind of the world as it is um here's how you can shift it may never change them but here's how you can shift yeah you know i have said it's an it's an advantage to be different than everyone else that you know if you walk into a room and you're you look a different way or you sound a different way you're more memorable and people will appreciate that and so i've said you know own it be excited about that your background tell your story we see people come into tts all the time and they're so focused on the technical skills which are great but let me be honest Stuart. if you know python you can learn java right like it's syntax but people want to see that you know you love burritos and you can water ski and you worked in customer service and it's the pieces all those other pieces um, that really make you like a whole unit and that's what people like and so i you know we work so hard with our students to say like tell your entire story that's more important than i the think other piece. when you're in your 20s and even 30s i didn't know my whole story like i would leave out when when people said tell your story i would give them my resume yep so um right now if people say betsy what's your story you've got a minute or two what do you tell them that's a great question um now not then now what's your thumbnail yeah i think uh, i grew up in a privileged wonderful dreamy childhood i got lucky and stumbled into you know running my first company and then started another and have worked so hard and kept going because it was the ability to change lives that's motivated me uh, that particular thing is different at tts than i think it is if i was selling widgets right i get to see uh, individuals trajectories of their lives their kids lives changed by what we're teaching if we get struck by lightning today and the only thing that survives is oh, this little piece of digital audio uh, what is your legacy oh my five kids my my kid kids and and what do they represent to you oh my gosh i mean you talk about every reason i want to move forward and you know be present and happy i mean my kids are also fantastically different which i think is cool um and i mean they're just there's everything to me they're by light they're they're inspirational i mean i watch them do things i'm like you're so cool you're so smart like I'm learning from them. Um, they're they're good humans. 
Uh, and then, you know, the, my fifth being kind of what I built with the company and all those people that have helped get me there, you know, my coworkers, the students that I've put in, I mean, they've changed their lives, right? They've, they've said, Hey, I'm going to leave being a, a barista and I'm going to trust this lady. I'm going to go learn to code. And like, they're now senior developers of bank of America and, you know, Lowe's and Accenture and. It's really, really cool to see that. Like, I think that's a big part of my legacy is, you know, I believed it would happen and it did. And it was because of those people and like what they were made of. And I just was a facilitator, right? Like that's all I did was say, here's, here's the code and here's an instructor in a room. And they, they had it in them to do it. So I think those two things for now are my legacy. Um, but you know, who knows if, if, we're not struck by lightning now. I don't know what it would be in five years from now. Yeah. Thanks for making time. Thanks for telling me your story. Yeah. You're awesome, Stuart. Thank I you. I hope I listened. You, you're amazing. And I have to say thank you to Betsy on several fronts. One is that she has taken time out of her personal day uh, between all those Pasala kids and a full-time job as a founder and CEO at Tech Talent and Strategy to help me and to help me get to know the world of entrepreneurs and of innovators and of, you know, tech inventors, which is something that fascinates me. It absolutely fascinates me as a person, you know, who's just an old boomer trying to learn new tricks. So love to talk to women in entrepreneurship and in tech. If you'd like to talk, hit me up. Hit me up. Always looking for great new guests. Thank you, Betsy Hooser. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported any of my crazy ventures, manlistening.com, In Her Words, the podcast, and now voicelocket.com. Thanks so very much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.